Well, we continue in a series on the Beatitudes of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom Habits of the Heart. And each week we're exploring one of the Beatitudes. And this week is, um, is the third one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But um, I think it's important to read these in the context of the whole because they all go together and they all fit within the sermon. So I'm just going to read again the first 16 verses of Matthew um, chapter 5. So hear God's word to us this morning. Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his, um, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure, I'm sorry, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely accuse you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be salt, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or put it on a stand. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit this morning, spirit of illumination and light that would light us from the inside out. Give us insight into the scripture, into meekness. Give us insight to how it applies in our particular personal lives, but also in our broader political lives. And help us to know, God, again, that you are real. You are the God of the universe and that your commands are wise and they are good and they help us to make sense of this world and to follow you. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning as we're listening on, whether at home or here, we know, Lord, that you are the God that moves towards us and not away from us. You move towards our brokenness as a gentle, loving Father. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Most people are familiar with Friedrich Nietzsche's Friedrich Nietzsche as the atheist philosopher and opponent of Christianity who famously declared God is dead. Most people, however, are not familiar with Nietzsche's actual arguments against Christianity. Nietzsche's critique of Christianity has to do with Christian morality, which he calls, quote, the most malignant form of falsehood. According to Nietzsche, 
Christianity is what he calls a slave morality. A slave morality that originated out of resentment. The early Christians were powerless and weak. They didn't have social capital or power or political power. And so what they did is they took their weakness of their situation and they turned it into virtues as a way of getting revenge against those who had power over against them. And the Beatitudes of Jesus really encapsulate everything about this slave morality that Nietzsche just hates. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, peacemaking, mercy, enduring persecution without being retaliatory. Nietzsche saw in these virtues a great deal of deceptiveness and falsehood. He saw them as disingenuous ways of manipulating the strong. This <clears throat> Christian morality was like a passive-aggressive way of being in the world. The strong, according to Nietzsche, are those who flourish in the world based upon their nobility, their creativity, their passion, their power over themselves and over others, their generosity of spirit, and their honesty. And he saw that Christian morality was an assault on these values. They were really vices. And in particular, the virtues of meekness and humility. Again, Nietzsche says, to quote, nothing is more vengeful than meekness. Meekness is weakness in his mind and mediocrity. It is actually hostile to life, undermines passion, and attacks at the root of life. Again, it is a mode of existence born out of impotence, an inability to act upon the world in a noble and strong fashion, so it has to act in an underhanded way. And so the, the Nietzsche's critique of Christianity is he sees it as a, a kind of underhanded value system that discredits and controls the strong. Now, there is a great deal about Nietzsche's account of Christian morality that is very contestable. Not only does he not understand it well, <laughs> but his own vision of what is the moral life is very problematic, to say the least. But I share this because I think that Nietzsche's critique helps keep us honest as Christians, especially during a political season like this. I think it's very important for us to listen because Nietzsche is not just responding to the New Testament in Christian theology in the abstract. He's responding to the political and social and cultural reality of Christianity in his own day, which he found to be greatly hypocritical. Talk all the time about meekness and humility and gentleness and, not, and loving your enemies, but at the same time grabbing for power and control of the world. And I don't think a great deal has really changed since his time. We as Christians still want power and control of the world, and we're willing to let the teachings and person of Jesus be slightly distorted or twisted in order to get that power and control. And I don't think any of us can deny the fact that in this season of political struggle, that in America, that Christian values themselves have become part of the war part of the culture war. And I'm not just talking about the political right, I'm also talking about the political left. 
And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, at the end of the day, as Christians, many of us are kind of like functional Nietzscheans. We're functionally Nietzschean when it comes to living out the Christian virtues. Humility, forgiveness, compassion, mercy, enemy love, meekness, yes, sure. These are important virtues for us to apply in the context of our interpersonal relationships or in the church life. But how is it possible to survive and to thrive in the marketplace, in the academy, in politics, in society by embracing humility and weakness? That is just not how the world works, right? And it is, in, it is naive and it is insincere, actually, to think otherwise. And because we don't want to be phonies and frauds, we just avoid too much public reflection or practice of these virtues. And so we have managed to filter out, by and large, virtues like humility and weakness from our everyday lives. And I think more often than not, our public lives are like the rest of America, characterized by a basically soft Nietzschean view of the world Nietzsche talked about will to power, but we use the word express yourself. It is power over myself, power over others, nobility, strength, creativity, self-assertion, freedom to be and to express myself. This is a basically the Nietzschean worldview, and by and large, I think that we have embraced it, even as Christians. And yet what Jesus says about meekness stands true, whether Nietzsche understands it or not, whether we understand it or not, it is true. And I think it's probably the case that Nietzsche actually never met a humble, meek Christian. And perhaps we often don't as well. And as much as we might try to minimize meekness or to spiritualize it away, you can't do that. Meekness deals directly with power in the world. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He does not say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit heaven. Or, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit an otherworld, otherworldly immaterial realm. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or the land. And what Jesus is doing here is he's actually recalling Psalm 37, which was our sacred reading. And that whole psalm was about meekness and the political struggle against injustice and the establishment of the people of God in the land. And land for the, in the Jewish imagination always had to do with the political, cultural, geographical reality of Israel. But what Jesus does here is he expands land to earth. So it's not just the boundaries of ancient Israel, but it's the whole earth. Jesus is making a political statement when he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's saying the true inheritors, the true citizens of this material, political, cultural, social reality that we call earth are the meek. And we can't even treat meekness here as a minor key in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus makes meekness, or that word gentleness, which comes up, it's the very same word in the Greek. Meekness and gentleness are a central trait and characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Especially we see this in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, we've already heard this in our, in our assurance of pardon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
I'm meek. I'm meek and lowly in heart. In just the next chapter of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, he quotes from the suffering servant song about the gentleness of God's servant. And he says this, and he applies this to himself. He says, I will not quarrel. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Jesus symbolically enacts his meekness and gentleness in the triumphal entry when he goes into Jerusalem before his, his passion. He comes in on a donkey. And, he, and, and Matthew quotes. He quotes from, from the book of Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you, meek, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Meekness is central to grasping Jesus' own messianic identity, who he is as Savior and Lord. Which, of course, you're all thinking, well, what is meekness then? What is meekness? Meekness has to do with our relationship to power. How we use power. People often say, if you've grown up in Christian circles, you'll hear this. This is probably the most common definition of meekness. Meekness is not weakness, but strength under control. This is true, mostly true, but it is not an adequate definition for meekness. And the problem with this definition is it tends to depict meekness simply as the opposite of power or setting aside power altogether, not using power. But this is not correct because meekness doesn't have to do simply with setting aside power and not using it, but it's the wise use of power. It is a certain restraint and regulation of our exercise of power, but to actually be meek is, inquires a great deal of inner strength to do it. Meekness is not about abandoning power or restraining. Meekness is the wise use of power. Jesus does not cease to be meek even when he's fighting, boldly confronting an evil world. Meekness is using power that creates space for the sake of bringing about others' restoration and flourishing. Meekness is the use of power for the sake of establishing connection, relational connection. I like to think of meekness as like a style virtue. And by style, I mean like how you wear something. It has to do with how we wear power, how we display it in our lives, how, how it fits us like a garment. That's what meekness is about. I mean, just again, remember, Jesus is the Son of God. And he possessed all the power of the universe in his little pinky. He's never without power. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He walks on water. He changes water to wine. He raises the dead. He calms the stormy sea. He's challenging the most powerful people of his day. Never has a human being walked the earth that possessed more power and more authority than he did, but he says of himself, I am meek and lowly. A bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. And the culmination of his life, of his work, of his mission, was a surrender and, and of, of the external use of his own power to protect himself, 
Instead, he willingly undergoes arrest and trial and torture and crucifixion. And yet, on the other side, he emerges as the resurrected one who is exalted and ascends to the right hand of power in heaven. See, the call to meekness is a call to be like Jesus. It's a call to actually participate in Jesus, to be a part of his life, to experience the world emotionally as he does. It is a call to understand how to use power as Jesus uses power. So there's two things that I just want to look at, in particular, drill down on about meekness. That meekness is for flourishing. It's, it's power used for flourishing. And meekness is power used for connection. Flourishing and connection. Those are the two things I want to draw out. And before we can understand meekness, I think it's important to step back for a moment and to reflect on the Bible's use and understanding of power. We tend to have a, a very negative view of power, understandably so. I mean, most of you probably know the quote, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is true. After the fall, after sin has entered the world, all power has been corrupted. Like all of our natures have been corrupted. However, to have power and authority is central to what it means to be a human being who is created in the image of God. In the very beginning of the Bible, after God creates human beings, he says this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, have power and authority, in other words, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the psalmist in Psalm 8 reaffirms this, reflecting on this verse. And he says, you have given him, that is human beings, men and women, dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under their feet. What in the Bible distinguishes human beings from the rest of creation is power. It's power and authority. The difference between us and animal life and everything else that is not human is power and authority. But what is this power for? It is for the sake of fruitfulness, blessing, and flourishing of all creation with humanity. The commands for dominion and to subdue the earth are not for us to use and abuse and exploit creation however we self see fit at its own expense. The ruling power that God gives human beings is for the sake of blessing and fruitfulness of all creation. It is to bring about life and flourishing. Power is not simply for our own self-advancement at the expense of the creation, but for creation's own flourishing and good. And in creation's own flourishing and good, our good is found. God gives power in order to draw out creation's full potential of goodness. I think we often think of when God originally created the world that it was just perfect and complete and full. The world was perfect. In, in other words, it was without sin and out mar, but it wasn't complete. There was all kinds of hidden potentials and glories that God wanted human beings to draw out of the creation. And it's the same for us. We weren't fully formed and realized. Part of being image bearers was to draw out creation. Creation was like a newborn child, complete in its humanity, but not yet fully grown. 
And actually, I think the, the, the illustration of the relationship between a mother and a newborn child captures the dynamic of power and gentleness that I'm talking about here. Power is a gift. Authority is a gift. Think about that of a mother and an infant. Compared to the infant, a mother has incredible power and authority over her child. In all ways, a mother is more powerful than a baby. But she uses all her power and authority as a mother to bring about the nurture and the life and the protection of her child. And yet, we never think about that as an act of power because of how much gentleness and tenderness a mother is with a baby. And yet, the activity of conceiving a child Birthing a child, nursing a child, raising is one of the greatest acts of power and authority in all the world. The gentleness of a mother is not the abdication of her power, but it is the wise use of it for the flourishing of her own child. And see, that's, that's, a, that's a picture of how God intended human beings to be in the created order. Endowed with power and the gift of power and authority in order to draw out nurture and life and stewardship of the creation. But the problem is, is that after the fall, all power that is inherent to our nature as image bearers becomes corrupted, right? Power becomes unequally distributed amongst image bearers such that some people have a lot of power and authority and some people have very little. And of course, this is the source of so much injustice in the world. But then, even if we have our person that that doesn't view ourselves as having much power and authority in the world, we all have power and authority. And we will use whatever little we can to protect ourselves and to seek our own advancement. But I think the answer is not to turn our backs on power or necessarily to demonize those who have a lot of it. But it is to understand how the virtue of meekness and gentleness God gives us to help us grapple with how to use power properly in our lives. The reality is, is that as image bearers, no matter how strong or weak you see yourself, we can easily overwhelm and damage and snuff out weaker and more vulnerable parts of the creation in the exercise of our own power. I think about this with my children and animals (laughs) when they're very young, especially with frogs and toads. And just remember, they would capture these frogs and toads and they don't know how to be gentle, and they end up mangling and killing so many toads on my watch. And I would say, gentle, gentle. You have to be gentle. This creature is so much smaller and weaker than you are. This is God's creature. Maybe some of you have seen this Netflix documentary, uh, My Octopus Teacher. It's about a man who's kind of going through a midlife crisis, and he decides, he's a documentary filmmaker, and he just decides he's going to go out into the ocean every day, and he's going to swim without a wetsuit, and in a scuba tank, and he befriends an octopus that he visits every single day for a year. And over time, this octopus opens up its life and actually invites him into his life. And he sees things about the sort of the sea world in this kelp area of South Africa that he's never seen before. But the way he describes his relationship to the creation and to the ocean was one of gentleness. He had to be gentle, and then this octopus sort of opened up its world to him. See, learning gentleness is making space and restraining ourselves so others 
can reveal themselves to us. Others can grow and flourish and thrive. Gentleness is the wise concealment or use of our power that creates space for others, especially for those who are weaker or more fragile than us. It is the submission of our personal power for the sake of another's flourishing and good. God gives power for the sake of fostering flourishing in the world. It is a good thing originally. It has been corrupted. But this flourishing then brings us to this, this second point, that flourishing and the experience of flourishing is primarily expressed as connection, relation, relational connection. God gives power and authority for the sake of establishing connection. Meekness is learning how to use our own personal power, however much we may have, for the sake of establishing connection. This is the goal of power, relationship. Jesus' use of power is always personal and it's always relational. It's a power that seeks to establish intimate connection, face-to-face encounter with another. And when we fail to engage the world with this goal in mind about why God has given us power, what ends up happening is we easily overwhelm the world and the people around us, and we break connections, and we have difficulty establishing and keeping relationships. Just think about how Jesus exercises power in really incredible ways in the Gospels and how this leads to connection and relationship with other people. Think about the woman who is bleeding and she makes her way to Jesus in a crowd and she just grabs a hold of his robe and it says he felt power go out of him into this woman. And then she cowers in a corner because she knew she shouldn't touch the teacher because she's unclean. And Jesus comes and he says, who touched me? And she comes cowering before him and he calls her a daughter of Abraham and restores her, right? Or think of Lazarus who's dead in the grave and Martha and Mary are weeping and Jesus is weeping. They've lost their good friend and Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead and he gives him, Lazarus, back to his sisters. Or think about the man, the Gerasene man, who lived by himself in the caves, who had a legion of demons that lived with him. He was completely out of control and dangerous. And Jesus comes and he casts out the demon and the man sits before him calmly. And when Jesus leaves, he says, let me come with you. And Jesus said, no, I want you to go and I want you to give glory to God. Go back into the community. See, that's how Jesus uses power. He doesn't use power to protect himself. (laughs) He uses power to establish connection, relationship. See, in a sinful and fallen world, our temptation is for us to always use our power not for connection, but for protection. We use our power for protection, not connection. But to seek and to maintain relationships and connection is inherently dangerous. It's inherently dangerous. It makes us vulnerable to harm and to injury, to rejection. And so I think we're tempted to use our power, and this is always self you know, we're never thinking about it, it's just instinctual, to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves from being vulnerable. And I think this is the, the paradox at the heart of power, the gift of power, which, which requires the virtue of gentleness to, to figure out. Gentleness, gentleness is the exercise of power with vulnerability. Gentleness is the exercise of power with vulnerability. And the more power you have in the world, your status, your wealth, whatever it is, 
the more vulnerable you need to be. To be a gentle person is to be a vulnerable person. And you might have a lot of power, but if you're gentle, you don't use your power to insulate and protect yourself, to with just withdraw from situations, to make yourself invulnerable. There is no deep relational connection with other people, or with created order, for that matter, that does not involve vulnerability. There is no intimacy without vulnerability, without the potential for suffering, for harm, for exposing ourselves. The reality is, is that when we become vulnerable, we, we build trust. We build relational and social trust. When we are invulnerable, people don't want to trust us. And I think, you know, again, we, we have so many different ways, very subtle ways, where we use our own personal power to protect ourselves. We, sometimes we use our intelligence. We want everybody to know how smart we are. <laughs> and it's a way of, of keeping ourselves protected. Or, or maybe we're really funny and social and we hide behind that. Or, or maybe we just have the luxury of just withdrawing and not engaging at all. Or perhaps we, we, we come overbearing or defensive or angry or even abusive. Or it's possible even to use your own suffering and your own pay, pain to control situations and to keep people away. As human beings, none of us are exempt. <laughs> none of us are naturally gentle. None of us are exempt from abusing our power in ways that break relationship and connection. But to be vulnerable, to be a vulnerable person isn't necessarily mean that you open yourself up to all harm and injury, that you're always wearing your heart on your sleeve and, and always bearing your soul in an emotional way. That's not, you know, again, you can do that to manipulate. But to be vulnerable is to let people in. It is to be available. It is to be accessible as a human being. It is, in a sense, it does involve emotion. A certain emotional availability, but, but not, you know, and again, we all express this in different ways. Not everybody's the same. But to be vulnerable also means we, we don't always enter situations in which we feel like we need to control the outcomes or manipulate how things happen. It means being willing to be exposed to suffering and misunderstanding um, for the sake of connection. Where, and this is key, the connection is more important to you than protecting yourself from getting hurt. Meekness is a courage and strength to recognize another person. It is the strength to engage them, to ask their name, to want to generally know about them. Which means we have to set ourselves aside sometimes. We have to set aside our own uh, insecurities, or our own pain, to create space for another person. But it's not simply that. It's not simply you being a, a vessel that's open and listening. Vulnerability also and gentleness also involves a courage and willingness to be known. Sometimes we're really good at listening. We, we, we're, we'll listen, we'll listen, but, but when people start asking about us, we're like, we kind of close off. To be known. But not known in a way where we're always projecting strength and self-confidence. Friends, to be gentle is to be the kind of person, it, it takes incredible strength. 
again, we think of gentleness as, as, as sort of like weakness and setting aside power. And See, that's false gentleness. True gentleness it requires an incredible amount of inner power and strength. Because you look at a situation, you're like, I might get hurt here. But I'm going in. Because I want to stay connected. Because I want to know. This is what it means to use power as an image bearer. The gentleness of Jesus is his ability to establish and maintain relationship and connection with us despite suffering. Think about it. What he was willing to suffer in order to have his, us in his life. Think about what Jesus went through in order to have you in his life. How much harm and injury you did to him. I did to him. And yet he doesn't pull away. He doesn't smash us. Jesus' gentleness was his refusal to use power and authority in a way that protect himself and shielded himself from harm. And this gentleness was his willingness to suffer on our behalf. Friends, we are fragile. We are broken. We are that bruised reed that's twisting in the wind. We are that smoldering wick that you just, it's almost about to go out and he comes to us and he doesn't blow us out and he doesn't smash us down. But he comes to us and he is tender and he's gentle. He works with us. He's patient with us. He doesn't force himself upon us, even though he's the God of the universe. He doesn't overwhelm us. He entreats us like a lover <laughs> trying to, to woo a beloved. That's how he is with us. To be meek is to learn to set aside our power and really to trust God. That's what Psalm 37 is all about and trusting ourselves to the Lord, and letting God be God. And it's actually in this meekness is where we actually find ourselves in his life. And we participate in his life. And when we do that, that's when we really find rest. True rest, deep rest for our souls. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Father, we, we ask that you would give us the ability to enter into Jesus' rest, to know the lightness of his yoke. Give us the courage and inner strength we need for meekness, and gentleness. Help us as the church learn what it means in our very um, contested time to exhibit the, the virtue of gentleness and meekness, Lord. We give you thanks that you came to us not as a raging uh, fire or tornado or windstorm, Lord, but you came to us like a gentle lamb. And you wooed us and you cared for us tenderly. We thank you for your love and gentleness with us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.